last thing that I said here, that Christian theologians assume they must offer a defense of theological claims on a foundation derived from nature or history or human consciousness. And the point that I would make is, no, we don't begin from those sorts of, uh, you know, we don't begin from any other foundation than Christ. And that is, there is a, a, a way of working that out in a practical sort of way. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, uh, I would make the case that we do, in fact, need something on the order of apologetics or philosophy of religion, or maybe we need to change up the name just to make a departure from where uh, we've been in the past. But the this reconstituted understanding is going to address the moral, the intellectual, the imagination, uh, the uh, it, and it will be a holistic thing. So here is my goal for a reconstituted natural theology. First, the goal is to relearn the deep grammar of our faith and to apply this grammar, this lens of understanding to all of reality. Um, as we engage a particular topic or a particular subject and engage it with a theological insight, I think that what we will find is a consistent uh, nihilism and lack of foundations. Um, This is the project in radical orthodoxy. It's a, a project that you know, you can go through the history of human thought or go through the various, you know, sociology, psychology. I've done it. Psychology is particularly interesting because what's happening in psychotherapy, it, there's not, nothing hidden here. That is what I'm saying, that human subjectivity is grounded in a lie. Oh, they're saying that. I mean, Zizek just says that up front. But he just says this primordial deception is all that we have. And so the deception necessarily has to be the case. The deception has to be the truth because he has... It's, that's, Zizek's a very interesting thinker because he's willing to go all the way with this. Uh, most people aren't willing to go that far, but he's very insightful in uh, philosophical and psychoanalytic terms because he's describing then where I think the deep grammar of an Enlightenment modernist understanding takes you, and it turns out to be deceived. And so what we have to do is ground ourselves in this in, in, in a, in a, at a level uh, that we can engage all things. Uh, so our knowledge of God is given to us in Christ, we don't reach that conclusion based on other metaphysical claims, but rather we begin from that understanding and we move into then, you know, I used the last time the picture of C.S. Lewis in the tool shed. We can either examine the beam of light and see the dust particles and not see anything else, or we can look along the beam of light 
And I think that describes the two ways that Scripture, unfortunately, has been used uh, in a traditional apologetics. It's been put under the sort of scrutiny that we're just examining the beam of light and not using Scripture for the purposes that it was intended, and that is to look through the lens of Scripture to apprehend all of reality. So natural theology, rightly understood, is the employment of all our resources, demonstrating that our existence and the existence of the universe are unintelligible if the God found in Jesus Christ is not God. Uh, I don't know if philosophically it's correct to call this a coherence, a a theory of coherence, but for our purposes we'll call it that. Uh, That given this understanding of who Christ is, our job as apologists, or you could just say our job as missiology, being on a mission for Christ, is to make sense of the thing. Uh, That is, that what we're claiming is this brings coherence to our world. That is the witness that I think we're called to in apologetics. Um, That what is, you know, this is the thing that we did in worldviews a little bit, but it's the understanding that Heidegger and Wittgenstein, and many are bringing us to and recognizing that we only have any understanding of a particular thing in and through a web, an already existing web of understanding. And and what needs to change up in, in uh, our Christianity is the web of understanding, that everything is then held together in and through the central fact, or, you know, that Jesus is Lord, that he's raised from the dead, and everything coheres in that. Uh, This is Karl Barth. With its knowledge of God, the church actualizes a possibility open to mankind, but of which mankind as such cannot avail itself in practice because of the fall. And I'm with Bart here. In other words, what usually occurs in a natural theology is we assume, given the metaphysics of the modern world, or give, you know, that we all have this common sense understanding, uh, common sense rationality, as you know, the early American, uh, even Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell would have it. That then, given that, you can work your way to God. Well, no, what's not taken account of there is that what we've done is rejected God, and I see that not just in a Calvinist you know, sense that our minds are darkened, but in a Pauline sense that we've actually taken our understanding and perverted it. Mm-hmm. So the point is not to make the gospel respectable, which would amount to absorbing and domesticating revelation. I'm afraid that's what apologetics tends to do. It says, oh, this will work. Greater than the danger that the gospel might be angrily rejected is the danger that it might be possessed and made innocuous. That is, if we fit Christianity into our already existing worldview, we've reduced it. We've... we've, uh, to made it accommodate a frame of reference that it is not meant to accommodate. 
This is Bruce Marshall. The Spirit's work is to teach us how to believe and judge all things in accordance with claims whose denial will always be rationally plausible. It is the work of the Spirit to teach Christians that their claims about the way things are, though always susceptible to being refuted on rational grounds, are not without persuasive power and or the support of argument. There is no knock-down, drag-out argument, and we should not presume as much. There is no necessary argument, as Anselm would have it. There is no absolute proof, as modernists would have it. Uh, that, uh, but I would say the same thing about everything. That, that's not just the Christian situation, that's the human situation. That's the situation of being finite. So Christians do not seek to justify what they believe out of fear that it may not be true. Rather, justification is inherent in the mission enterprise of confirming the truth of Christ through Christian witness. I, I, I get this in apologetics and people that tend to be infatuated with it, maybe including my, you understand, my own early graduate work was in apologetics. So again, I'm not talking about anybody, you know, I'm talking about me too here. The, uh, the systemic doubt you may not notice, uh, is really, uh, working from a different angle than what I'm describing here. Uh, that if the argument doesn't prove true, maybe we'll just do what, uh, you know, the guy at Lincoln did, we'll become atheists and leave our wife and, you know, write books on atheism. Um, that it's as if, you know, the modernist situation is the given framework. And when the arguments fail, it's not that your worldview has failed. It's just that, oh, those arguments given this worldview have failed. Mm-hmm. Well, no. What we're arguing about in Christianity is an alternative worldview. If your if your arguments then are simply a, you know working from in a modernist framework, their success or failure, in fact, have not succeeded in converting you. Right? You've not truly been converted if your belief in Christ is dependent upon this modern framework. Is that too harsh, Jake? Conversion is a full conversion. And and maybe we're all in process here. But it's the full conversion into an alternative worldview. This is Bruce Marshall again. Acquiring a Christian view of the world calls for a persistent willingness to overturn the epistemic priorities we would otherwise be inclined to have. That is, we're starting over epistemologically. That we're giving up one set of epistemic priorities for another set of epistemic priorities. That's what seems to be what Paul is saying in Corinthians. You know, that he's talking about the wisdom of the Greeks and, you know, the 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 demand on the Jews part that there be a sign. He said, but I preach, preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That is an epistemic priority for Paul. 
in at least this sense, ordering one's beliefs such that Jesus Christ has unrestricted epistemic primacy requires a change of heart and not simply a change of mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it seems, proclaims a truth which cannot be known unless it is also loved. And then he references 2 Thessalonians 2.16. This is Kierkegaard's consistent point. Can you understand a Christianity which you have not accepted? Does the one who is, who is not a Christian, you know, and, and I think if we reduce Christianity to just another mo- you know, permutation of a modernist understanding, we couldn't quite understand what Kierkegaard is saying there. But if we understand well, what he means by that is that you enter into an alternative world, an alternative worldview or paradigm, then we can, we can get that. This is the way that Stanley Horowitz puts it. Christianity is unintelligible without witnesses. That is, without people whose practices exhibit their committed assent to a particular way of structuring the whole. Witnesses are not evidence. Rather, they are people whose lives embody a totality of beliefs and accordingly make claims about the world and how the world is arranged. To understand what the church believes is to know what the world is like if these beliefs are true. So that's the difference between apologetic arguments and witnessing to Christ. That what we're inviting people into is a community of belief, uh, a shared understanding that in which we are constituting our own lives and living accordingly. So that, again, I I don't see the apologetic task as anything separate from the mission task or the evangelistic task. In this sense, I'm not in any way undermining the role of apologetics and I'm, I'm putting it front and center and putting it right in the center of Christian witness. This is Horowitz again. The church precedes the world epistemologically. That's, that's an interesting way to put it. For Christians believe that we know more fully the way things are from the faith, the confessed faith in Christ, than from any other source. Accordingly, the meaning and validity and limits of concepts like nature or science cannot be allowed to be self-justifying, but must be governed by the confessions of the Lordship of Christ. I think you could say the same thing uh, by saying that redemption precedes or is to be privileged over creation. Same God. We believe in God the creator and we believe in creation. But the question is, do we have access to creation apart from redemption? And I would say no. And, And even in saying no, I don't mean that People can't know things or even know true things about creation. But ultimately, what is blocked from them is the understanding of who God is in and through creation. So I think that's partly what Horowitz means here. The church precedes the world that we know as Christians on a different basis. It's not common sense rationality. It's not mathematics. It's not science. 
But literally, Christ is the foundation of an understanding, and we begin there, or a Trinitarian foundation. Uh, Christians betray the grammar of the Christian faith when they rely upon the plausibility structures of modernity that presuppose that the existence of God is a question that can be asked and answered without affecting the very notion of truthfulness or the world. Um, this is Leslie Newbigin, not this quote, but Leslie Newbigin says a, 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 a very similar thing, that to presume that you know we have the revelation of who Christ is and uh, and then to say, uh, well, no, thank you, God. I have other means of access to who you are. Uh, is <laughs> that's the the kind of the presumptuousness of enlightenment modernity, or of Bacon's notion of a the book of nature as being parallel to the book, the Bible. Uh, that no, in fact, we only have access to who God is in and through Christ. And so that is the, the deep grammar of our, of our faith. So that's, the, that's our starting point. But it's a strange starting point for us. Because this isn't where most forms of Christianity, it's not you know whatever evangelicalism is, I'm never quite sure what that word means or conservatism or fundamentalism or catholicism or nobody's starting that i can see uh, uh, or have been starting from that understanding why is that you know so part of i think part of what we need to do is to identify what went wrong in uh, a christian understanding and we could do this in any number of ways Obviously, a Constantinian Christianity in which it's not just atonement theory and it's not just state and church that get fused, but what's happening with Anselm uh, is an alternative way of knowing that the very system then is accommodating Roman law and Roman understanding throughout. Anselm is accommodating Aristotle, obviously, or, or Aquinas is, uh, you know, we could go through Duns Scotus is with the idea of a univocity of being that there, there is, it's possible to get to God on the basis of human understanding. And that leads us to Descartes and right into to modernity. Um, have, I do, have I ever done the, uh, the an, an interesting way to tell this story? is through the revolution in time. It, it almost gives you a concrete picture uh, of what's happening in modernity. Um, if you went back to you know the Middle Ages, to the medieval times, how were they telling time? It'd be sundial, right? Uh... And if you changed locations, you know, you'd have to check, you know, with the local sundial. 
What happens gradually is that the church becomes, you know, they begin to have, uh, it develops in the monastery first that Paul says be continually in prayer. They took this quite literally. And so in the early monasteries, they developed a system of bells that would go off automatically in the cells of consecutive monks. So that the first clock was an alarm clock. (laughs) And they would go uh, around the the clock. Uh, Of course, it wasn't round yet, but uh, we're getting there. In that they would have people praying 24 hours a day. They took Paul quite literally. And the church then, from the monastery, became, you know, the church clock tower. So that early mechanical clocks were in the clock towers. But then, another way of telling the story of the Industrial Revolution is that, you know, we often begin with the spinning jenny or the steam engine. But what many people don't notice is the people, the mechanics of, I mean the people doing that work, were originally clockmakers. Mm-hmm. And so some would trace the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution to the clock or the watch because the gears and the mechanisms that are are needed for a clock are going to be directly applied to both the spinning jenny and the the steam engine. And then the first manufactured product is clocks. And in, I think it was Switzerland, but they had to begin to keep time. I mean, literally the daily rhythms of life had been by the sun. And so they opened a factory and they needed to get these people who were farmers to come to the factory at a particular time. In other words, instead of sunrise, they said, well, let's meet at the, you know, come to the factory at eight o'clock. And then they would award whoever kept the best time a prize. And guess what the prize was? A clock. <laughs> so that um, what is, there's a, a wonderful book called The Revolution in Time. And what is being described in this is that the beginning modernity, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, and just the shift in thinking to, to capture this the sociological sense of this. You've got, to, you've got to get that everything is changing up with the development of the mechanical clock. Um, they actually ran a contest in England. You've heard the, the phrase, you know, when my ship comes in. Mm-hmm. And of course, the idea is that when your ship comes in, you know, people would invest in shipping. But it was very risky. And the likelihood is your ship ain't coming back because a high percentage of ships were lost at sea because they didn't have any means of navigating. And what they needed was a chronometer, a timepiece that would work on 
the deck of a rolling ship in order to navigate. Mm -hmm. And so England and actually several countries are engaged in a race to develop such a timepiece. And in England, they created a committee in which they would award the prize to ever, whoever could develop a mechanical clock that would work on the deck of a ship. Guess who one of the people sitting on the committee was, whose whole life is going to be about the revolution in time? Isaac Newton. <laughs> so I think it's no accident that as the mechanical, in his lifetime, he is developing a picture, an absolute picture of time, absolute time, right? Time free of space, time not dependent upon the sun or natural rhythms, but the way that he's picturing time is mechanically. So his laws of time and space, they're really a kind of, they're building, I think, upon the living metaphor of the clock. That the clock is, in fact, maybe you could say, you know, who's to say which enabled which, the chicken or the egg, you know, here, which came first. But the two things are developing together. So that modernity and the ideas of modernism, in which you have a closed system, are also then just radically affecting people in their uh, socially. And so we've shifted from you know, I think the shift originally was from what, in fact, a pre-Newtonian time was more like Einstein's theory of relativity. All relativity is saying is that time is relative to physical events, to an observer. Um, with Newton, time is no longer relative. Of course, who's correct? Well, in the end, Einstein's correct. But with this shift, then there's a whole shift in the rise. There's the rise of the modern nation state. There's the rise of secularism. You know, this is, uh, uh, you know, secularism and with secularism, capitalism. There, our very system of valuing things, the very economy that we're a part of. Max Weber, uh, you know, the spirit of capitalism. Have we done this together? Uh, he is tracing the rise of the, the system that we have, and he connects it to Calvinistic, Luther and Calvin's Protestant understanding. And the idea is, you know, that in the Catholic Church, you have the sacred order, and so people who were priests or nuns, you know, that they're living the, a, a kind of holy life, and everybody else participates in it on special days or special occasions. But what Luther is doing is leveling that out and saying that it's not just that priests and nuns have a holy vocation, but every vocation is holy. And so the you know it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a janitor or storekeeper, and Calvin gets mixed into this too. This is actually kind of a Scandinavian uh, development. That every vocation is a holy vocation devoted to God 
and therefore God will bless it. What is the sign of God's blessing of your vocation if your job is making money? You have a lot of money. (laughs) You get rich. And of course, you don't own the money, right? It's God's money. And so it's excess wealth. It's money that is can be saved. It's money that you don't necessarily utilize, but it's money that you can. And so the, the picture is that, uh, in and it's much more complicated, I'm giving you a quick summary, but of a sociological shift that kind of were saturated in a kind of capitalistic way of valuing so that time is money, you know, that our lives are reduced to a kind of commodity that can be traded. But that is not developed in a system that is free of religion, but rather Protestantism has very much been the supporting element in that. I think that too then uh, describes the epistemology, the shift in, in, in epistemology that we're facing. We just we live in a in a world that, partly because of bad theology, partly because of a failed theology, uh, has made a major departure then from a Christian worldview. I'll stop there though. Do you, that I, I just very quickly introduce then. Uh, any qu- questions, comments? Um, the way to you know the way to uh, let me do let me do a real quick thing here with the ontological argument. This is my summary of the proslogion, one of the key arguments in the proslogion. Um, What Anselm is doing, even though it's pre-modern, even though it's medieval, I think sets sets the stage for modernity. How might we characterize modernity? You know, I think, first of all, that it's going to be individualistic. Right? It's going to depend upon the individual. It's going to be centered upon uh, a kind of rationalism. And the two things are not separate. The rational foundationalism is based upon absolute individualism. Uh, Connected with both of these things, where is truth to be found? Truth is going uh, to, you know, if it's individualistic, rationalistic, it's going to be found in language. That truth is going to be in human language, per se. Um, There is a closure that's there in Anselm. And I would say the whole system is built upon closure. The, the modern, you know, by the time we get to Isaac Newton, the universe itself has been closed off. 
the nature of the rationalism that I would trace to Anselm through Descartes is always dependent upon a limited whole. That is, you can't deal with infinites. You have to, in some way, reduce things down so that they are eminently graspable. And I think that's the, you know, that if you had to characterize Newtonian, the Newtonian picture, it's a closed universe. Even though it may be an infinite universe, yet it's a closed system with, with a, you know, absolute rules and laws that we can grasp. So Anselm says, God is something than which no greater can be thought. Um, notice the realm in which we are working. And this, this may sound at this point trivial. But he's working in the realm of thought. Which, by the way, he himself has shifted. He did a cosmological argument in which thought was not the realm in which he was working. In other words, he's, he's doing this and working it out. And the cosmological argument is going to leave human thought on the finite side of an infinite divide. But he's doing something here that he, the entire system is going to be in the realm of thought. That which no greater can be thought must be thought to exist. Otherwise, that than which no greater can be thought has not been thought. Therefore, God must, God must be thought to exist. Right? Um, he is going to say, and he works this out in some detail, that man is created in the image of God, and that just as Christ is the bearer of the image and mediated God, mediates God's own self-presence to him, so too human self-presence is mediated in human thought and interiority. And so Anselm, I would say, in this, this is the beginning of apologetics as we have it. This is the first of the arguments. This first argument and this is what Kant will say, moves us into a realm in which as human thinkers we can leap the ontological divide between finiteness and infinity. We, and he means this literally, that we'll see God within ourselves in human interiority. Um, I'll pursue this next time, but I think that you know, if you had to say which comes first, the chicken or the egg, uh, which comes first, a failed theology and modernity or modernity and a failed theology, I would say that we can trace the developments of the modern in this pre-modern system. That is that, to my mind, theology always in some way has taken precedence in a Western understanding. And I'm not just blaming Anselm. We could go through, you know, Augustine, go back to his Neoplatonism. This whole system, you understand, is built upon a Platonic understanding. So, if, if we, if, uh, the, the deeper that you get into things like the envelope, 
more you recognize, oh, he's shifting up the whole world.